Thank you, choir. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, the second chapter in the book of Philippians. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to make mention how exciting it is to, uh, to always have baptism, and especially when you have one out of children's ministry, one out of student ministry. That is, uh, that is just so awesome to, uh, to see that and to hear how our church celebrates that as well. And uh, I do want to introduce one real quickly before we get into the message this morning, who is also joining but has already trusted Christ and been baptized. That's Terry Evans. Terry, I think is back here in this back corner. Just kind of give a nice wave back there, Terry, if you would. And let's give Terry a nice welcome this morning. Terry has such a story of how the Lord has used her through the years. And uh, if you meet her, I encourage you to do that and ask her about her story. God has worked through her life and uh, impacted people in, in some unique ways. So super glad that she's here. So Philippians chapter 2, we've been in this series now for uh, a number of weeks. This is about week 7, I believe, as we're moving through from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4. And uh, uh, we're about the midway point of chapter 2 now. Once we get to the holidays, it's unlikely we'll be done with Philippians. Uh, but we'll take a little bit of a hiatus, a little bit of a break, and uh, kind of have more of a of a Christmas focus as we move closer. And uh, then we'll pick it up again after the first of the year. But Philippians chapter 2 is where we are this morning. So I've been reading a book titled Into the Wild that uh, I started just a few weeks or so ago. It's a book that was written some time ago, but it chronicles the story of a fellow by the name of Chris McCandless. Uh, Chris McCandless was... um, uh, his, his story is interesting. There is a component to it that is both invigorating and then also tragic at the same time. And as you move through his story, Chris lived pretty much an average, ordinary upbringing. He was born in Inglewood, California, February 1968. His father really provided for them a little bit above and beyond. He was a, uh, an antenna specialist with NASA, and so they had a good life in Chris's growing up years. They eventually, at the age of eight, moved over to uh, Virginia, so they moved somewhat from one coast to the other, and uh, it was there that that Chris kind of lived out a very average, ordinary, normal childhood. He would enroll college uh, after graduating high school at Emory University. He would then move down to the Atlanta area to attend there, but upon graduation, Chris made a decision that in some ways shocked his family and those who knew him the best. He made the decision almost immediately after graduating from Emory to, uh, to donate all of his savings, $24,000 to charity, pretty much unloaded virtually everything he had except his old Datsun vehicle, and, uh, and he event- began his trek towards the West Coast. He, he unloaded virtually everything. He began to make his way across from Atlanta, across to uh, hopefully to California in that old beat up car that reminds me of the car I drove when I was in seminary. Uh, it was a Mazda. His was a Datsun. He made it as far as Arizona and finally that car breathed its last pretty much in the desert there. He ultimately took the license plate off that car because it was uninsured. He didn't want him to trace it back to himself. He uh, burned the remainder of his, of his possessions and he chose to live somewhat of the life of a nomad slash adventurer. It was going to be adventure in his eyes, ideally, but it was very much the life of a nomad. He began to hitchhike. He would dot the landscape kind of of our country. He would go from Arizona to Colorado and down into Mexico for a season, all the way up to South Dakota a couple of different times. Until finally, at one point in South Dakota, he was working just to provide the very bare essentials of what he needed to survive. He, uh, he, he shared with his employer that he'd become friends with, if you want to call it somewhat of a friendship. Chris didn't get very close to very many people. But he shared with his employer that uh, he, was, he was done there and he was going to go into the wild. See, there was a draw in Chris's life that drew him out of the ordinary, that drew him to do the unexpected, that drew him literally to the wild, to the wide open space there in Alaska. That was his desire. 
And, and so he said goodbye to his employer, and he began to hitchhike from South Dakota to Alaska, making it there more quickly than you would have expected. He arrived there, eventually caught a ride up to what's called the Stampede Trail, a very remote area of Alaska, for him to begin to step into his dream. One person who had passed him by there would later reflect and say that he had very meager rations, a very light pack, and it was obvious, very little experience. But he was living out his dream. He would cross the Teklanika River in uh, April of 1992, and he would begin his trek even further into the interior of Alaska to a place known as Fairbanks Bus 142, an iconic site there that was a very rustic, uh, somewhat of a makeshift um, cabin, if you want to call it that, for those who were hunters in that area. It was very remote, did not often have may- very many people inhabit it. This would be the photograph for which Chris McCandless would be most well-known, sitting outside of bus 142. That bus would later be airlifted out of that area, placed in a museum, because of the numbers of people who would lose their lives trying to get to it. It was that remote. Chris had a rifle with him, 400 rounds of ammunition. Even though he wasn't much of a hunter, he would go through periods of almost starvation to actually being able to find something that he could shoot for food. He would shoot squirrels. He would shoot porcupines. At one point, he even shot a moose illegally, but the meat spoiled for the most part before he could get any much benefit from it whatsoever. And so finally, unexpectedly, as was his custom, he would come to a place where he had decided, you know what, my life in the wild is over. And so he packed up what meager belongings he had, and he began to head back towards civilization. Only problem was, when he got back to the Teklanika River that he had previously crossed, it was now warmer, and that river was overflowing. It was impassable. There was no way he could cross that river and still save his own life. And so he went back to bus 142, which had become his home to some degree, and it was there that he began to encounter more starvation than he had ever experienced before. He had a book with him about wild plants and berries and, and, uh, and that was found there later at bus 142. And so he would eventually go out and begin to forage for food and he just couldn't find much of anything. At one point he would leave a handwritten note there uh, at this particular bus. It was an SOS, literally, that's what he had written on it. And he said, I've gone to look for berries. If you find this, please do not leave. Of course, no one found it until some moose hunters would come along sometime later and they would find his body in a sleeping bag inside of bus 142, along with rolls of undeveloped film, which as later would be made available of his photographs. This would be one of his photographs. And, and they would also find his journal, and it appeared that he had survived 113 days in the wild. It was the draw of the wild that ultimately led to his death. You know, in every person's life in this room today, we have two draws that we have to deal with in our lives. There's the draw of the world, right, that calls us to itself with its motivations and with its desires and with its worship and with its, you know, with with all of the trappings that it carries. 
And then there's the draw to uh, the God who created you, right? There's the draw of that God who calls you to himself. Jesus would speak of that draw in John 6, when he would say, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. Every one of us in this room who have a relationship with Jesus today, that relationship began because God drew you to himself. It's difficult to explain. I can't lay out in piece by piece order exactly how that plays out. All I know is, is that Jesus said we can't come to him and unless the Father draws him, draws us. And every person in this room today, many of you that have given your life to Christ, you've been drawn to God, but you also know the experience of when God draws you to live life to his pleasure, to live life according to his agenda, by his plans, for his purpose. There is that draw, but then there's also, again, that draw of the world that calls you to itself. What we see in Philippians chapter 2 is that Paul, in many ways, is dealing with those two draws that come in life, both the draw of God in our lives and the draw of the world that beckons us sometimes shouts for us to abandon him and, and to embrace its motivations and its desires and its worship, right? Paul unpacks both of these in Philippians chapter two. And as we begin to move through this middle part of chapter two, we see that Paul in some ways is going back to what he's already said, but he's also painting a bit of a new picture for us right here in the midpoint of Philippians chapter two. And so what I want us to see, first of all, before we read through the entire chapter or through the entire passage we're going to look at this morning, is I want us to just pull out how we get a glimpse of these two draws that I've just described. Look down in verse 13 in Philippians chapter two. Paul makes a statement that he hasn't made yet, uh, specifically in this book yet. He says in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, some would say, well, that verse means that God is always working. He never stops working. That would make a great song, by the way, if anyone would ever just write that, that he's always working, never stops working. I don't know. I got a little framework of it in my mind a little bit, that he's always at work in you. And some would say both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Some would say, well, it's God who is, is, is enforcing his will and enacting his work in our lives. I don't know if that's exactly what it's saying, right? I think what this verse is getting at is that God is at work constantly in us, right? He is drawing us to himself, drawing us to his ways, drawing us to his will, but it is up to us to conform our will to his and then to ultimately work out the Christian life through the lives that we live every single day. God is the one drawing us, constantly drawing us. But then look down in verse 15, Paul says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a, here it is, crooked and perverse generation. There's this picture, and we see it right there in the passage. There's the draw of God in a person's life, and there's the draw of this crooked, fallen, perverse world that is against everything that God is and that God stands for. And we have a decision to make, which draw are we going to answer? I think in this passage, there are going to be three key words that you're going to see, and I'll point them out as we move through, that to me, summarize this passage that we're going to focus on today. The first word is the word obey. The second word is the word shine. And the third key word is the word stand. So let's go ahead and move through this passage and begin to see how these words come to the forefront, obey, shine, and stand. In the context of the draw of God up against and in contrast to the draw of the world 
in every one of our lives. So let's begin at verse 12. We're going to jump in and we're going to read the whole entire passage down through verse 18 and then we'll start to move through it. So Paul writes and he says, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul begins there in verse 12. He says, so then, my beloved. Let me pause there because that so then sort of goes back to the earlier part of chapter 2 that we broke out last week, right? Paul is talking in verse 5 through verse 11 about the humility of Jesus, that even though he was God when he walked this earth, always has been and always will be, that he didn't consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what Paul says there is that he didn't lay aside his deity, but he emptied himself of his rights and his privileges as God. And I won't rehash everything we looked at last Sunday. That message is online and you can check that out for yourself. But Paul is talking about the humility that Jesus displayed. And he says in verse five, he says to have that same attitude in ourselves. And so in the context of Paul saying, we need to humble ourselves the way that Jesus humbled himself when he walked this earth, he then says in verse 12, he begins to speak about the topic of obedience. The key word here is the word obey. What does he say in verse 12? He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what does that mean? When Paul says, work out your salvation, he's saying this to you, Christian, right? And he's saying this to me, if we're followers of Jesus. He says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Does that mean we're just supposed to be knee-knocking, scared of God all the time? No, I don't think that's what it's getting at. The word fear there really means reverence. And the, 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 uh, the phrase fear and trembling really points to recognizing the importance of this. Some would say, well, well does it mean that I'm supposed to work for my salvation? No, we don't work for our salvation. Take a look at what it says here. Look at this passage behind me on the screen. Romans chapter five, verse one. Paul makes it clear in the book of Romans. He says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not justified by our works. We're not justified because we're good enough. If you're thinking (laughs) that you're gonna get to heaven because you're better than that person down the street or that coworker or whoever else, that there's this upper echelon of really bad people and you're not in it, right? That your works are good enough to get you to heaven. It does not work that way, I promise. I promise you it doesn't work that way. It's not about getting to heaven based on our goodness. It's about getting to heaven through our relationship with Jesus. So Paul is not saying work out your salvation or or rather work for your salvation. He's not saying to work for it at all. We get it by grace. What he's saying is to work it out in fear and trembling. Again, understand that this is serious stuff. Fear and trembling means take this seriously, work it out. And in the context there, what that means is, is that we carry it to completion. 
And again, there, it doesn't mean you're only partly saved. If you've given your life to Christ, you are 100% completely top to bottom through and through. You are saved in a relationship with God. But he says, your salvation is not just for you. There's a purpose in this world for you. And so work out your salvation. How do we do that? By living a life that's godly, that puts them on display, and by persevering, not giving up. He says, work it out, work out the salvation that you've been given. Imagine this for just a moment. Some of you may have been praying for this for years. Imagine that a long-lost relative leaves you an inheritance, okay? Any of you been praying for that? Maybe so. And uh, you've got this long-lost relative, and let's just say that one day you're notified. You get this uh, notification, certified letter, whatever it is, and uh, you, you learn the news that this long-lost relative has passed away. They've left, left you a half a million dollars, Suddenly, your life is different now, right? <laughs> You've been get, you don't deserve it, right? You didn't do anything to earn it. It, it, it is not because you worked for it. It just, just got put right there in your lap. Somewhat like salvation in a sense, to where we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but Jesus, right, he came, God drew us to himself, we placed our faith in him, and boom, there we go. We have this inheritance called eternal life. And imagine in the context of that financial inheritance that you receive, now you have to make a decision. Am I just going to go blow all this money, right? $500,000. Am I going to blow all of this and just spend it on all the wrong stuff and use it up for myself? Or am I actually going to kind of work it out? Am I going to decide what I want to do with this? And am I going to use it responsibly and in a way that honors God and in a way that helps people? Is that, how am I going to handle it? I have to make a decision. I've got to work out this inheritance now. That's, that's what Paul's getting at. That God has given us a priceless gift as Christians. He's given us salvation. He has moved us from death to life, from lost to found, from guilty to forgiven, right? He's moved us. He's given us a brand new life that can only be qualified in the book of John as being born all over again. That's the terminology that's used. And he's given us this priceless gift that we didn't work for, we don't deserve through Jesus. And he says, Paul says, now... Don't just sit on it. Don't frivolously use it away, but rather work it out. Fear and trembling. Take it seriously. Live a life that puts that God on display and do not give up. Persevere. And the word there that stands out that we can begin to understand is the word obey. He says, verse 13, it's God who's at work in you. You're not in this alone. He's in work in you, both for you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Keyword, obey. Next two verses, the key word is the word shine. He says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom, here it is, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Verse 14, don't you love that that one's in there, right? Verse 14, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. <laughs> Some of us, we kind of hate that's in there sometimes, right? Because we can, we can flat out grumble about things. For example, you ever go to McDonald's and the ice cream machine was down and you really wanted ice cream? You ever had that happen to you? About eight o'clock at night? Just grumble. I can't believe they can't even Ever had your team lose in the next half a day, the next day, the next week? It's just grumbling, right? 
Ever had something not go your way at work or maybe it's kind of around the water cooler in the break room and it's grumbling about that other employee or grumbling about the boss or just grumbling because it's too hot in this room right now in the moment or too cold in this room right now in the moment. Just grumble, grumble, grumble. A lot of times we have a tendency just to live our lives grumbling. Here's what we don't ever think about, that when that characterizes our Christian life, right, God takes it seriously grumbling. He had some stuff to say about it back in the Old Testament in the wilderness especially. But whenever we grumble, here's what we don't think about, that when we live a life of grumbling or just disputing. We're always going at it with somebody. We're always just locking horns with somebody. If that's characteristic of the way we handle ourselves, that takes the shine off of our Christian influence. It takes the shine off of it. And think about this for a second. Imagine that when I come up here on Sundays, imagine that every Sunday when we come, my goal and my aim is just to try to teach this book faithfully the best I can. I'm not the best at it. I'm not the most creative at it. I just try to do the best I can to teach this work the way God has, has helped me to prepare. That's, that's my goal. But imagine that instead of me doing that, teaching the word every week, imagine that every week all I do is get up here and just grumble about stuff. Grumble about politics and grumble about the weather and grumble about sports and grumble about this and grumble about that. Imagine if all I did was grumble and complain. What you would say is that is not reflective. This is not what we're here for. This is not reflective of the God you claim to follow. And it's the same way for all of us, right? Paul says, do no, earlier he said, do, do nothing out of uh, uh, selfishness or empty conceit. He said that back in uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Now he's saying, do all things, let's bring the verse up again, do all things, he says, without grumbling and without disputing. And here's why he says. He says, because it's going to take the shine off if you do this, if you grumble and dispute. He says, but do everything without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves. And then he lists these qualifiers, to be blameless, to be innocent, to be children of God, right? You're in relationship with him, an above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Here's what I love that Paul says next. He says, among whom, by the way, this fallen world with its hard edges that has its own way of doing things, that is opposed to God, has its own motivations, has its own desires, has its own worship, right? So that you will appear as lights, in that world shine so that if you're a teacher and you're a follower of Jesus you're not just a teacher that happens to be a Christian you're a Christian who happens to be a teacher and God has put you where you are for the express purpose of not just educating children and students, but he's put you there so that those students and their families and your coworkers get to see what God looks like when God teaches a class. You are, you are one to shine in that environment. If you're a lawyer and you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just a lawyer who happens to be a Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be a lawyer. And God has put you in that position of influence and service so that your colleagues, your coworkers, your clients get to see what God looks like when God tries a case. If you're a doctor and you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just a doctor who happens to be a Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be a doctor or a medical professional, or a nurse, or whatever may be the case, so that you don't just have a job that draws an income, but rather you are God's representative in that workplace, in the medical field, so that they get to see what God looks like when God helps hurting patients. 
And the list goes on and on. If you carry, if you're a trade, if you're a student, if you're a coach, whatever it may be, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen, everything changes. God has put you where you are so that they get to see what God looks like when God shows up on the scene. Why is that? Because you are placed in this crooked, fallen, perverse world, right, who has a whole different way of doing things, So that you, not that you can look at them as enemies, not so that you can ultimately say bad things about the people who live there, but so that you can go into that midst and to be a, an example and a reflection of who Jesus is there. That's why we use the terminology here in our church, everyday missionaries, because it's biblical. It's not like, like the Southern Baptist Convention told us, hey, talk about everyday missionaries, and so we're doing it because some governing agency in our denomination told us. That's not the case. We don't do it just because we're a, a specific church that has an idea, hey, let's talk about everyday missionaries. We do it because it's in the Bible, <laughs> right, that we as believers are called. It's not just for the professionals, the missionaries. Right? It's for every follower of Jesus that we're called to live on mission, to put him on display, to shine. And Paul even says, among whom you appear as lights in the world. When Jesus gave his high priestly prayer in John chapter 12, uh, 17, you can read this if you want on your own. John chapter 17, what he prayed for was a lot of different things, including you and me. But one of the things that he prayed gives this picture that for us as Christians, that God, Jesus himself would say that you are in the world, but you are not of the world right? You're in the world, very obviously, but you're not of the world, he says, Christian. Even though you're in the world, you're not of the world. He has saved us out of the world, and then he has sent us back to the world with the message of the gospel. So he says, shine. (laughs) Shine. God is at work in you, verse 13, both for you to will, to conform your will, your desires, your motivations to his, to work, to serve, to, uh, to live life, putting him on display for his good pleasure, right in the midst of the very place that crucified Jesus, the world that's opposed to God. He says, so go back there and live a life that honors him. Prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, a child of God in relationship with him. Whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's on campus, whether it's in our neighborhood, whether it's the different places we go, spend our time. He says live this way. Verse 12, verse 13, keyword obey. Verse 14, verse 15, keyword shine. Verse 16, verse 17, I think the keyword could be stand. Verse 16, he says, holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I will have reason to glory because I didn't run in vain nor toil in vain. Now, Paul is talking to us. He's telling us to hold fast as well. But there is a context there where he's speaking to the Philippian Christians. He's speaking to them personally. See, Paul had planted that church earlier. We read of that in Acts about 10 or 12 years previous to this letter. And now he's writing the Christians in the city of Corinth, or in the city of Philippi, excuse me. And as he writes to the believers in the city of Philippi, he, he remembers all that he had done amongst them. He remembered coming in and sharing the gospel with a woman named Lydia down by the river at a prayer group, and they all placed their faith in Jesus. He remembers getting thrown into prison in the city of Philippi for a work that he had done where God did a miracle through him. Paul remembers all this. And as he writes this letter to the Philippian believers, he says in verse 16, hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, right, when we stand before him, I will have reason to glory because I'll know that I didn't run in vain, that I didn't waste my time amongst you all, that you, that you obeyed, that you shined, and you stood firm. 
verse 17, he goes back kind of to some Old Testament language. He says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. This is Old Testament language. Paul is talking about pouring himself out as a drink offering all the way back in Leviticus. It talks about what a drink offering was. And here's what a drink offering would do. We won't break down all the details of this necessarily. But whenever the Old Testament Jews would provide a sacrifice to God, if they were to provide a grain offering, for example, they would pour on top of that a drink offering. And that drink offering was symbolic of joy. It, was sim- it carried symbolism that it demonstrated that in this offering, they would pour the drink offering on top. That it was symbolic of their joy, obviously their joy in the Lord. Paul seems to be saying here, he says that I want to hear one day in the end when we stand before the Lord that you held fast the word of life, that you obeyed, that you shined like lights in this world so that my, my uh, efforts amongst you would not be in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering for your benefit, he seems to say, then I have joy that if you just walk with God in this way. Verse 18, he says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say endure your Christian life. <laughs> I mean, far too many Christians are just enduring their life, and you can see it. And there's no joy in their life. Paul says, no, take joy in the fact that you get to obey him. You get to walk with a God who saved you by his grace. You get to, to walk with a God who has a purpose and a plan for your life. Thank God that it's not the, the way in the, of the world, that it's not what motivates the world, that it's not the world's desires, it's not what the world worships, that it's a God who loves you, that he's got a purpose and a plan for your life. Praise God, have joy in that fact. Now get out there and obey him and follow him and shine for him and put him on display and stand for him. Him. because this world isn't always going to make it easy Paul would give his life for the gospel Paul would give his life in obedience and as he shined and as he stood firm and all along the way he did it in joy there's a principle here There's a principle that I think ties it all together, and I hope you'll keep this in mind. I hope you'll jot it down, that God draws us, every one of us, as believers. He draws us out of the world, and he draws us to himself. Out of the world's motivations, out of the world's desires, out of the world's way of living life, out of the world's standard of worship, God calls us, he draws us out of the world, and he draws us and calls us to himself to obey and to shine and to stand. And it's the marching orders of every Christian in this room, myself included, that as we live out our lives, it involves obedience to him, our king. It involves shining in this world where he's kept us because even though we're in the world, we're not of it. He called us out of it, but he sent us back to it. So shine there. And he calls us to stand, to stand for him, to stand for truth. So let me ask you a question as we close. If you look back over the recent days of your life, knowing that there's both the draw of God in your life and the draw of the world, which would you say is winning for you today? Would you say the world and its desires and its motivations and its way of doing things has more of a foothold in your life where God is not really a part so much except superficially? in name only, 
Or would you say that, that your relationship with Christ has a greater foothold in your life? And that you're continually being molded and shaped and transformed and changed to look less like the world that he saved you out of and more like Jesus who died for you in your place. And is there anything in your life that you would say that, you know what, Brooks, I think I'm doing okay, but there's this one area that just looks a whole lot more like the world than it does Jesus. Are you willing to surrender that area to the Lord today and say, God, I'm ready to walk away and I'm ready to press in close to you. Would you help me in this area? You know, this is a big call. We take it in fear and trembling, meaning we're not afraid of God. We don't work for it, but rather we take it seriously to obey and to shine and to stand. As we do that, the church is healthy and the church is effective because we proclaim him and we project him and we live for him and we enjoy him. That's the call for you today, tomorrow, and beyond. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. A time for Christians right now to take some inventory. And a time for those who've never given their lives to Jesus. Maybe you're one today that you believe in God, you have for a long time. You have nothing against God. You've just never come to the place to where you've realized who you are in light of him. You've never really seen yourself as a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness. You know, the good news is, is that God always meets us in that place if we're willing to come to him on his terms. And maybe for some today, you've never given your life to Jesus. You've been to church. You've been to church maybe for years. But you've never come to that place where you've turned from your sin and literally invited Jesus to forgive you and to take over your life as Savior and as Lord. Well, right where you sit today, if you believe that Jesus is God and that he died and that he rose for you, right where you sit, you can invite him if you're ready to forgive you of your sin as you turn from it and to forgive and to take over your life, and he'll do it. God, we thank you that in the midst of this fallen world in which we live, that beckons and that calls and that draws us away from you. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to something better. You call us and you draw us to relationship with you, our God who created us, who knows us better than we know ourselves. And Lord, not only do you draw us, but you paid the cost of that relationship when Jesus came and died and rose again. And so God, as the world continues to draw and to, to call out to us, Lord, may we realize what it will cost us when we go there. But Lord, may we also recognize what it costs us if we don't shine in the midst of that fallen world, God, because so many need to see what you look like as we live lives that put you on display. And so God, use us. Lord, give us the courage to obey, to follow you in your way. Lord, give us the courage of the boldness to shine in this fallen world for you, to never shrink back from identifying with you, God. And, and may we also stand firm, stand true for you and on what is, what is good and what is right and what your word tells us. And God, we praise you for what you'll do through that life that's yielded to you. Lord, may you always get glory in whatever area of our lives right now don't reflect you. Lord, show us and give us the, the courage. Help us to see the importance of adjusting and following you. 
Thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. And thank you for this great letter we get to read 2,000 years after it was written. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.